when they launched it, it was twice the price and had half the features of other stuff out there. But it surpassed the market leaders three times over. It actually had a glaring bug too that erased all of your data. He gathered all the employees of this factory out in the courtyard. He had them take all the things that they were working on, put them in a giant pile, and he lit it all on fire in front of them. Products that get returned, half of the reason why people return them is because they can't figure them out. Yeah, so I'm gonna give you guys a little context about this talk. So I actually pulled this talk together in December of 2006 for a uh, executive offsite at Yahoo. At the time, um, the company was still doing pretty good, but we were getting to the state where we were realizing the quality bar for some of the things we were doing had been falling as the company had been growing. We were on yet another kind of big growth leg and uh, lots more people joining, lots more things happening. And when you do that, it's more challenging to sort of keep things at a consistent level of execution. So this talk was around um, the EVP of what was at that time the Yahoo Network, which was our first time pulling all our products together under one leadership. Uh, previously, Yahoo ran as a bunch of separate entities, and um, that has changed a lot, but you could totally tell Yahoo Sports is completely different from Yahoo Tech or what have you, right? Because those were literally um, almost standalone companies within the big umbrella. But we sort of got on the bandwagon of, hey, we can actually pull these things together and make something more interesting. So um, this was the first offsite for that group of all the products together. And the leader at that time, like I said, our AVP, really believed in making things great. And he wanted to sort of instill in people, what does it take to do that? Because as I mentioned before, this diversity of leadership, this diversity that different teams had resulted in different levels of quality and output across the board. So I gave this talk at uh, his offsite, and then I gave it actually in a couple all hands in uh, Yahoo for the entire network team. And since then, it's sat in a folder on my computer uh, for about two years. I still think a lot of the stuff here is relevant. So let's see how it goes. Um, given we're at 1230 and I have a bunch of stuff in here, I'm going to shoot through the first part and get to the more interesting part. Kind of spend a little bit more time on that. Um, so without further ado, by the way, interrupt me if you have questions, want to say something. It's a good forum for that. So uh, I'm Luke, and uh, <clears throat> I spend most of my time doing a digital product design or managing a team that does digital product design, working with a whole bunch of different disciplines to make that happen. But I also do a lot of reading and writing about uh, design and digital products and things like that. And as a result, a lot of that Reading and writing leads to kind of higher level thinking about it and putting together some structures around it, which then loops back into actually making products. So this talk really pulls from a lot of the reading and uh, conferences and these sorts of stories that have been around and I've been exposed to. And I kind of try and tell a little bit of a story about that, about what it actually takes to make great products. Uh, before I do that, and this is kind of some of the stuff I'll go really quickly. Um, you might ask, well, what the heck's product excellence? And when you're in a large company, you have to define things because there's lots of different people who have lots of different opinions about what's what. So it turns out that there, I don't think that there's actually a specific definition of what makes a product great. And this is one of the reasons why there's diversity in how people evaluate what's coming up. A good example of this is, um, this is a uh, diagram from Donald Norman's book, The Invisible Computer, that he offered a long time ago. And it basically highlights a couple different stages of what's happening as a technology or a product sort of grows. 
in the first kind of beginning, there's this big unfulfilled need that people either know they have or they don't have, and there's nothing there. Things start filling it, and as people say, ooh, it does the one thing I like, I wish it did more, features start piling up, and after a point, you hit this area where it's good enough, and all of a sudden, people are adding more and more crap, and people aren't interested in it anymore. Um, and so this is kind of that stage. So pure function is the first thing. If it's the one thing that does what it, nothing else does or what I didn't know I needed to get done or I wanted to be done, people are going to be happy, right, just so that it actually works and hits this need. In the second stage, which uh, you can call kind of feature wars, the number of features starts to matter because people kind of make their buying decisions about how much stuff does this have, right, and they don't really understand what each feature does. They can't evaluate. On a, on a distinction between features. So more features equals, ooh, that one's better. Um, as you kind of flip this transition, you enter a state called, what, what Jared Spool here, and I'm quoting him on these labels for these phases because I think they're actually kind of nice. Uh, the experience and total cost of ownership matters most. So here, things that have fewer but better features start trumping the things that are you know, over, um, overloaded with features. And Last but not least, things sort of become commoditized and absorbed into a broader product mix. So you can think of things like that, like the DVD player, right? The DVD player now, how many people go out and buy a standalone DVD player? It's in this computer, it's in your car, it's in every single other device. Uh, on the web front, uh, I think Instant Messenger is moving into the commodity front. It's just a feature in an experience as opposed to the standalone uh, product, right? And the first thing was, ooh, I can chat with people. Then it got killed with features, right? And then you saw a lot of people try and enter into simplifying that experience. We at Yahoo, Yahoo have actually done that as well. And now, you know, we have actually started integrating it. The biggest growth we've had in Messenger has been in integrating it into mail. Um, and, you know, Facebook recently integrated Messenger into their product, so on and so forth. So what makes something good in terms of product excellence is different depending on where you are here, right? It's not always the same sort of evaluation criteria. I think it gets even more specific. If you look at like even one of those phases, like in the future wars group, these are just a couple diagrams that say the same thing. In here, evaluating what makes a good, um, actually this, this Harvard Business Review diagram probably says it best. If you're trying to maximize for repeat sales, a lower number of features might actually optimize customer response. Uh, if you're trying to maximize for somebody's lifetime value, you might want to hit somewhere in the middle. And if you really want to maximize initial sales, again, in this kind of feature wars period, then you might push towards more features to get a better customer response. So the definition of what makes something excellent from a product perspective, I think, is dependent on where it's at in its life cycle. And then even within each aspect of the life cycle, there's some other factors you can take to evaluate how good it is. So I think one of the things that led to us really realizing we needed to focus more on excellence of the stuff we're doing is that we're increasingly playing in this experience wars space. And the reason why I think that happens is a couple parts. So one, people adopt new technologies at really, really fast paces now, right? This is analog color TVs. You can kind of say, yeah, it was a pretty good curve. VCRs, shh. but then you look at DVD players, it's just wham, right? So the rate at which people adopt new technologies as you move through time has really accelerated. So as something new comes in, um, <clears throat> it gets utilize much faster. Uh, customer acquisition. This is Skype's growth curve. In the first 25 months of the company, they actually ended up with 55 million customers, which at the time made them the fastest growing application ever. I think I like on Facebook has actually surpassed them 
recently. But you know, think about that for a second. Within two years, you have 55 million customers, right? I mean, that's crazy. So that propels you really, really quickly towards things where the experience for all these customers matters. Um, another thing that happens is faster revenue growth. So if you plot years of inception against kind of real money that these companies are making, and you look at some of the best companies, quote unquote best, right, but like very recognized, powerful brands, Dell, Microsoft, Starbucks, and you sort of look at the new age of companies that are coming up after them, again, the growth curves are much, much sharper and um, more immediate. So revenue growth happens faster as well. Another thing that's happening much faster is competition. YouTube launched in February 2005 when they were sold to Google uh, about a year and a half later, or maybe more like uh, two years later, there was 100 competitors that could match them directly in terms of features. This is a listing of all the kind of sites out there that had video upload, commenting, sharing, favoriting, all this stuff, right? So within a year and a half from these guys launching to when they were actually bought, 100 people could match them feature for feature. Um, so all these things lead to this sort of um, meta point around we're really moving up this curve very, very fast, right? Faster adoption of new technologies, faster customer acquisition, faster revenue growth, faster acceleration of competitors, so on and so forth. Therefore, you get more into experience wars sooner than you would have for a long amount of time. Therefore, I think a lot of the product excellence principles begin to matter more and more here. And that's what you start seeing in the marketplace, um, at least in terms of how companies are trying to position their stuff. The other thing that I think points to this in the web space, I mean, this, I think this is most apparent on the web, is the barriers to entry are so low. You can host a site for less than a cup of coffee a month. You can grab a free open source platform that literally can build you a uh, YouTube. You can get some sort of CSS framework, JavaScript framework, whatever, to build out the actual interface for that that people can integrate with. And this is an old stat, but we're close to 2 billion people on the internet right now. So for literally almost nothing, you can have a product out in front of 2 billion people. Um, and that's something that's really reducing the, or increasing the amount of stuff that's out there. And as a result, the experience of these things actually starts to matter. The other reason I think um, uh, product excellence begins to matter is because our access to information technology is creating very complex media products and services. So every day, and this is again from like two years ago, there's 60 billion emails sent, 1 billion text messages, around 500,000 blog posts per hour. And if you think that's just kind of the realm of nerds on the web, well, take a look at a typical story, right, on CNN. I mean, there's two stories ongoing, three indices, a scrolling feed of multiple things. There's a heck of a lot more complexity. And it's not just news. This is a uh, diagram from Steven Johnson's Everything Good is Bad for You, which shows the complexity of TV plot lines and kind of broadcast media, right? Back in the dragnet years, it's one storyline, the whole show. Starsky and Hutch introduced a radical um, <laughs> extension of the complexity of plots, wherein they started one story at the beginning, ran a whole other story, and then ended the other story at the end. History Blues actually got pretty complex in the 80s, and that they ran multiple narratives through a show, but very, very rarely did those coincide at the same time. You look at something like The Sopranos, which ran, I don't know, for the past five years or so, not only do you have somewhere around eight plot lines per episode, but many of those plot lines are intersecting across, you know, one, two, three, four at a time or something like that, or even more. Yeah, throw Lost in there now. I don't even know what that one's going to look like. like a, you know, a checkered 
And, but this isn't the point. This isn't the realm of nerds, right? Lost is a great example. This is like popular broadcast media right now, and it's increasingly complex. Uh, and also in terms of the, the, not just the storylines, but the relationships in these stories. So if you look at like Dallas, which is sort of the uh, quintessential example of a complex web of um, social mystery, right? I mean, it's actually not that complex. Whereas look at 24, and oh my goodness, you don't even know what's going on anymore. And 24, also a very, very popular show right now. So speaking of kind of social networks, if you look at any typical sort of web um, product out there now, there's all these contribution systems, ways of participating, rating, reviewing, tagging, commenting, discussing. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that you can share, sort of collaborate, email, save list, subscribe, um, add to your site, download, embed, what have you, right? There's all these different features and functions which tie all this stuff together. And the meta point is things are more complex, and we should care about things being more complex because when things are very complex, this was a study done in March 2006 that showed of kind of technology products that get returned, half of the reason why people return them is because they can't figure them out, right? Because they say they're too complex or too hard to use. And therefore, we care about good product design because if we have good product design, it helps manage complexity. This is an example I like to use of that. This is a uh, system for monitoring the health of a network. How's my network doing? <laughs> Do I have a problem? Should I call somebody? Should I be concerned? Whereas if we do a redesign of this and we sort of put in a little bit of a communication layer and, and drive a narrative, you can say, hey, threats are actually kind of high and there's these worms and recon attempts happening. I've got a few exposures, but thank goodness some defenses are firing and you can overall see when these things are happening in time to what traffic, so on and so forth. So applying a design process to this can actually help you make sense of increasing complexity, which is another reason why I think um, product design and product excellence matters more now. So hopefully, and this is the part I kind of whizzed through, hopefully I convinced you that it matters, right? It matters because there's a lot more complexity out there that we need to manage. And it matters because we're increasingly moving up that technology life cycle and you get to a state where just working isn't good enough very quickly, right? Yeah, it works. Okay, man, this guy already has 10 more features on it. Um, and so you start moving to a place where experience matters. So if product experience matters, what makes for a great product experience? And sad to say there isn't kind of a, you know, one, two, three formula. But I think there's um, a couple things we can learn from examples out there that I think are pretty meaningful. And this, this is sort of how I wrap these up. The first one is thinking outside in. And when I say thinking outside in, what I'm talking about there is the ability to leverage both insights out in the world, actually what people that are using your products are doing, and the capacity to actually talk to them in a coherent, single sort of perspective. And again, let me illustrate all this through stories. Anybody familiar with Quicken? So Quicken tripled its growth and tripled growth in each of the first three years it was out. But each year, and this was a home personal kind of finance system, right? Each year Quicken would go and run this survey and they were asking people, how are they using Quicken, so on and so forth, right? Every single year in the survey, there'd be this anomaly. And the anomaly was, oh, we're using Quicken in the office. The company was absolutely convinced that this is just some kind of weird fluke. It doesn't make any sense. This is a home product, right? Why would people be using it in the office? It's nothing that, um, that matters. Let's ignore it. So they, after three years, however, they began to think 
well, maybe there's something here, right? And so what they did is they started some uh, studies where they actually went to people's houses and saw how they were using Quicken. And they observed that what they were doing was that they were actually doing accounting without accounting software, if that may, makes sense, right? So what, what, what QuickBooks, which is this follow-on of small business software was, was the first accounting software without accounting. And when they launched it, it was twice the price and had half the features of other stuff out there. But it surpassed the market leader three times over. It actually had a glaring bug, too, that erased all of your data, um, <laughs> completely erased all of your data, and so on and so forth, right? But the reason why they were able to have this growth, and now literally 95% of their revenue comes from QuickBooks. The reason why they were able to have this opportunity is through insights. They sort of went into people's houses, they saw firsthand how they were doing accounting, and they designed the product in ways that people could grok, right? They didn't use accounting terms, they didn't use accounting practices, they used things that they observed people saying and doing in these kind of, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, take me home or go, go to my house studies. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of leveraging insights to um, think outside in. And when I say think outside in, it's all well and good to look at things from your lens and your expertise and your company or your department or your group or your whatever. But um, a lot of times the trick or the hard part is putting yourself on the other side of the wall, right? How are people looking in at you? And this is an example of actually doing that and having tremendous um, success at it. They were convinced this was not a... Uh, you know, business product, but when they actually, because that was the internal perspective, right? Oh, this is a home product. This is our home product line. They probably had a group, home product division, right, and all this stuff. Um, and when they went outside and kind of looked outside in at what they were doing, they saw an opportunity. What are your thoughts when you're a smaller business? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of this would require significant resources, time, um, for smaller businesses. I don't think, well, I, I guess I disagree with that. I mean, if you have a if you only have one customer, you can go over there and see what he's doing, right, and talk to him. You don't need to have fifty thousand customers or anything like that, and it doesn't cost you a lot of money. Just fill your car with some gas and go over there with the notepad, right, and ask him some questions. So I don't think it's a resource constraint issue. Um, I think it's there's a I like to quote Jared Spool because he's done a, he's a guy who runs a user interface engineering. He's been doing research for like thirty years on how products get made. Um, and he has a rule that says if you're not in front of your customers at least six times a week, I mean, I mean every six weeks, then generally from, from the research they've done of all these different companies, those go like this. The people that are in front of their customers or are talking to their customers at least once every six weeks tend to do a heck of a lot better. So, so that's insights. Um, customer innovation is another way of kind of looking outside in. And uh, there's a nice story around eBay here. In 1999, eBay saw that people were beginning to use PayPal, which is an electronic payment system, to pay for auctions. It was kind of trickling in here and there. It was the alternative to sending people a check, right? Which was what was happening before. So eBay saw this opportunity and they said, oh, okay, we're going to create a, uh, an electronic payment system. And they invested a ton of money in BillPoint and created this online um, payment system in 1999, but they built it from their perspective of how it should work. In February of 2000, there was 200,000 listings that used PayPal and 4,000 that used BillPoint. By April 2000, 1 million people were using PayPal, and by October 2002, 50% of auctions were using PayPal. eBay ultimately bought PayPal for $1.5 billion. 
right? But it was an example of how, if they had invested in PayPal or looked at what PayPal was doing three years earlier, right, instead of going there through their own solution, they could have saved themselves a bunch of money. And the, this is kind of the impact of ultimately buying PayPal, right? Um, in Q406, 11 billion total payment volume and up 36% year over year, right? So the, PayPal turned out to be the second big growth leg of eBay. Um, I mentioned Skype earlier, and I think this is an interesting parallel that's going to illustrate my point here. Skype was growing like crazy, right? It grew faster than PayPal, faster than eBay, faster than Yahoo. It was through the roof, right? And so eBay looked at Skype and said, oh my gosh, you know, same kind of growth that was going on in PayPal, this thing's huge. The problem was you didn't see any listings where people were like, yo, Skype me, you know? <laughs> I'm selling this car, why don't we talk through Skype and figure it out? It literally was not happening anywhere. Um, and what happened with Skype is in Q3 of 2007, they actually wrote off $1.4 billion, which is about what they paid for PayPal. Um, so they lost close to a billion dollars on the system. And I, I think the meta point is if you look at what your customers are doing, again, this outside-in perspective, it creates a very different lens and a very different opportunity. There's literally, in, in the systems we build, there's a huge opportunity for people to, quote-unquote, innovate in digital systems because they're flexible. Looking at that and, and defining opportunities is a great way of um, identifying where to go with the business. So Skype did not contribute to eBay in the way that PayPal did. Last point around thinking outside in is this whole notion of one voice, right? Um, it's, it's really when people are looking at you from the outside in, they don't see your marketing department, your, you know, your inner structures, your processes, or anything like that. They just see a single entity, right? They see eBay or they see Yahoo. So an example of illustrating this is, let's, I like forms. Let's say here's a really simple form and somebody says, Okay, we need to create something that allows customers to contact us. So someone in the design or the user interface space says, okay, I understand what requirements that might entail. I need who's contacting us, how can I get in touch with them, something for them to say, and then a mechanism for them to submit that information to us, right? So here's a simple uh, wireframe where we have you that enables that. Sales team finds out about this and they say, hey, you know, if we're going to be talking to customers, we got to know why they're contacting us. We have to have more contact information so we can follow up with them. Engineering says, oh, well, hold on. If we're going to actually be creating these record sets about um, users, we have to make sure that we're able to differentiate unique entities in our data structure, right? So we have to actually delineate first name, last name. We have to have a comp comprehensive structure for the address because that's how it's laid out in terms of name value pairs in our database. So the message becomes like this. Marketing says, oh, whoa, whoa, you can't talk to our customers without us getting some demographic information, right? Are they male? Are they female? When were they born? We have to understand more about these people. And by the way, they all want to get these marketing messages from us, right? Legal gets a hold of this and says, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. we can't collect all this information unless there's a privacy policy in terms of use that everybody's exposed to and agrees to. So this, this is a a model of, you know, no one raindrop believes they're to blame for the flood. It's not that the sales guys or the engineering guys or the marketing guys or the legal guys or the user experience guys are doing anything wrong. They're just looking at it from their perspective, right? They're looking at it inside out. 
But if you look at it outside in, somebody comes to this forum and they're like, holy crap, forget it. You know, I'm not going to contact these guys. And this is the thing that I mean about one voice. Here's another example of one voice, right? <laughs> what do you look at? Everything's screaming, hey, over here, over here. No, 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 me, 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 right? Personally, I gravitate to buying chicken breast uh, hormones <laughs> and tire wax together. But, you know, there's no unified communication with, with people here, right? Everything is trying to scream and yell at you. Conversely, um, look at something like VideoEgg or sites like this. The easiest way to get your video online, try it out. Oh, here's quickly how I can do it, so on and so forth. You look at it, you grok it, and you can actually start interacting. There's a single um, voice and message coming through with this. The other thing I think that's a nice example is sort of to look at outside in is looking at um, unpackaging experiences. So if I have like a great video that I want to share with the world, someone tells me to go to Google Video, this is the first thing I get. You know, give me your email, give me your password, re-enter the password, remember me, create a Google account, enable personalized search. What the hell is personalized search, right? I'm just trying to get a video online and then comes all this other stuff. So it's, it's an inside out perspective. We need to make sure that people are enabled into these options we have. Contrast that to a site like Genie, whose only purpose in life is to create the family tree of the world. Mm -hmm. You come to it, it looks like a family tree. You enter your first name, your last name, you click start my tree. Next thing you know, you're adding your parents and your siblings, and voila, you made a family tree. In the background, it sends you a thing that says, hey, if you ever want to get back to your family tree, here's how to do it. Um, and then they might ping you and say what's going on. But this approach gave them 5 million profiles in five months through a focus on what are people actually trying to do and how can we communicate them with one coherent voice. So this kind of high-level section, think outside in. Insights is, um, if you don't understand something, that's probably the market telling you something. Customer innovation is trust what people are doing and also don't fight the tide, right? I see lots of companies that try and get in front of this giant freight train and stop it or turn it to the left instead of trying to kind of hop on for a ride or add another car or what have you. Um, one voice to people were one single thing. And when everybody's trying to scream at you, actually nobody gets heard. So I'm curious what do you think about Yahoo's homepage? Uh, yeah, that's a great question, which I will... Uh, Yahoo's homepage is the mother of all homepage redesigns, or mother of all homepage designs. There's uh, 625 million registered users. There's significant revenue invested in it, so the constraints around that design problem are substantially higher than they are anywhere else, right? And a lot of things you see on there are artifacts of those constraints, right? It's, it's, it's a different world when, oh, let's just remove this thing. Well, that's actually 20 million people use that thing, right? Okay, well, if it was, you know, that may only be 10%, but it's still a huge quantity of stuff. So the balancing act there is very, very challenging. And we're actually in the middle of a redesign of the front page right now, um, which I actually have a whole other presentation on, if you're ever interested, I can send it around. That's a follow-up question. question. So um, how do you push this throughout you know, a large organization like Yahoo? I mean, I know even at a smaller, medium-sized company, getting yeah. experience perspective out there can be really challenging. It takes a lot of time. It takes a really, really long time. Um, is that how you work with Yahoo? Or? Yeah, so I mean, we, I told you, I made this deck like two years ago, right? and gave his presentation. At the time, we started a small team that was focused on network experience. As of like two weeks ago, new CEO, Carol Bartz, created a huge team called Integrated Consumer Experiences. 
where we pulled in mobile, we pulled in TV, we pulled in the front page, and we pulled in all this other stuff. Um, so it's happening, but it just doesn't happen in a month or a day or anything like that, right? It's a period of investment of, I would say, so far it's been like a two-year effort to really drive this kind of change. Like a lot of your time trying to you know, evangelize this? No. No, you don't, you don't, you try to keep out of their face, people's faces? Or uh, how, how do you yeah. push it without so that, that's, really pushing it, right? That's the, yeah, that's a whole separate Sorry. conversation too, but a, a lot of people think that the way to get organizations to understand the value of design is to run around and say design is valuable. Um, it's kind of like the equivalent of the accounting department running around and being like, accounting's great. Look at this is how we do balance sheets, and this is how we build depreciation worksheets, all that stuff. And nobody cares, right? They just want accounting to do what accounting does that helps everybody move forward. I think it's the same with our stuff. And what we've always focused on is getting stuff done and making things happen and not really trying to sell what we do. We always try and make it part of, um, part of how we work. Uh, but again, that's kind of a whole separate animal. Um, okay, so next up, know your core, and I'm probably going to run a bit over, so if you guys have to go, that's fine, but i got another 10 or so minutes here. Um, I'll just, oh, okay. So let's see, know your core, define yourself, focus, build outward. I ragged on eBay a bit, but um, I actually think they did a very great thing, especially very early on. Pierre Midyar was great at what I call, you know, defining yourself. So... He, his basic mission was to create a level playing field for everybody, right? Anyone can buy or sell something at a fair price. That was the vision of eBay. And if you compare where the company was in 2006, the time I did this, to this vision, I mean, they knocked it out the park, right? They were the 30th largest economy in the world, 34 markets. They had almost a million people full-time in the U.S. selling on e eBay. They had, you know, uh, one point, sorry, $1,800 sold every second. So relative to that, right? They knocked it out the park. And I think this is the core point around knowing your core, which is being able to define what you're trying to achieve. Um, how can you look at these numbers and know whether or not they did what they were trying to do unless you were able to define yourself? The other thing about core is, actually, what do you guys think makes eBay tick? What's kind of the thing that allows them to be this large economy or Anything in particular as part of the product experience that stands out? Search. Search, okay, being able to find stuff. Being cheaper. Okay, maybe the deals. Immediacy of product. Having the products there. I'm not sure because, I mean, it's based off an auction, right? I mean, how do they buy it now? They buy it now. Right price. Trust. Shut up, intern. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's a form of intermittent reinforcement. Every now and then you see a good deal that somebody gets and it entices. It's like a gambling. So it's kind of the addiction thing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's got a lot of stuff. So all those things I think play into it. A lot of people say it's feedback. So if I ask what's at the core of eBay, people say, oh, it's the fact that there's this feedback system so I know who I'm buying from. I know it's a trusted thing or not. Um, I think actually that's crucial, but the thing that I, and this is the really ironic thing about focusing on the core, right? So you can define yourself, but how do you create a product experience that brings that stuff to life? Personally, from my time there, I think the, it's a simple UI element that like runs the whole deal, which is all your search results are default sorted by time ending soonest. 
There's a whole bunch of other ways you can sort all the information, but what time ending soonest does is it means whether you're grandma in the garage or whether you're walmart.com, everybody gets equal time in front of the customer because it's whatever's ending soonest is showing up at the top. So at any point in time, everybody gets equal exposure to the deals, to the quantity, so on and so forth. Recently, they've started mucking with this in a very big way, and I think it's a response. I think it's, it's one of the core symptoms of why they're not doing so hot right now because they've inserted these big buyers that have featured placement and all this stuff, and they've really broken this level playing field model. Another example of a focusing on the core is dig. Everybody might be familiar with this little example or not, but basically here, right in line, you can just say, I like this, don't like this. Kevin Rose, who uh, was the founder of dig said when they shifted to this one click, say, I like it, don't like it. The thing just really exploded. Right. And that made all the difference in the world. So it was another core element of the product experience that really helped define what this thing is. It's like, it don't like it, like it, don't like it. They made it the focus. They made it super lightweight and super easy, and the thing took off. The last point I want to make about Know Your Core is about not building around or on, top, on to the sides or through or what have you of the core, but actually building from the core outward. So Flickr is a service that allows people to take photos of something, and then everything you do really radiates out from that. Right? You can put it in photo streams. You can organize. You can put in sets. You can tag it. You can share with groups. You can favorite it. You can comment on it. You can you know all this, all this stuff, but it all builds from that core essence of what the product does as opposed to building on top of it and through it. And actually with the recent launch of Flickr video, they didn't allow you just to put up video. It's a 90 second, you know, long term photo is the way they really think of it, right? It's not a video in the sense of a YouTube or a Hulu or anything you get on TV or anything like that. It's a extended photo, which again speaks to building on the core as opposed to around it. So know your core, being able to define yourself concisely, <clears throat> focusing on what defines you and keeping it really sacred. And that was my point about eBay time ending soonest. Uh, building outward really means going from it and expanding in that manner as opposed to you know smooshing it down or shifting it or what have you. Last but not least, and there's a fun story coming up, is commit to, to greatness. And I know that sounds like, hey, if you want to create excellent products, just be excellent. But um, there's a little bit more to it than that. So in uh, 1995, Samsung was a third-rate player in electronics. Uh, the chairman of Samsung, Gunhee uh, Lee, went out to Los Angeles and saw his products basically gathering dust on the shelves. He sent his friends Xmas Christmas presents, and they basically all returned them to him and said, we can't use these things, right? So the guy went to um, the company's main plant in Gumi. It's a city in South Korea where most of uh, Samsung's handsets are made. He gathered all the employees of this factory out in the courtyard. He had them take all the things that they were working on, put them in a giant pile, and he lit it all on fire in front of them. <laughs> it was literally $15 million worth of merchandise that he smashed to pieces in front of them and um, lit on fire. And he said, uh, you know, change everything about what you're doing except your wife and family. <laughs> Nine years later, Samsung actually became the world's most profitable tech company. Uh, they had $10.3 in earnings, and they enforced all these really hardcore systems around how things got done. So designers had to take year-long courses in mechanical engineering. Engineers and managers had to take design courses, so on and so forth. And at this time, Samsung was responsible for 20.7% of Korea's exports, right? They're 20% of a single country's exports from one company. So really bold move, right? And this is what I mean about committing to excellence. If you're going to commit to excellence, 
you can't half-ass do it. So I said ass. Um, <clears throat> twice. You do better. Twice. Um, <clears throat> you have to really make a bold move, and this is this is Samsung doing just that. The other point about committing to greatness is making the time. So uh, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, he had no job badge or anything like that, but he kind of was coming in every now and then, and uh, he. Well, actually, I should tell an earlier part of the story. Cordell Stewart, who was running the, the OS design team at the, at the time, there was an off-site when they were doing OS 8, where it was all the engineering team, the design team, the product team. Actually, there was no product back then, but the design and engineering teams, there were the marketing teams, had this full-day off-site. At the end of this off-site, the design team showed off these new concepts for where they thought the operating system could go. They had been kind of working on it in parallel. And basically the reception was everybody laughed them off the stage because they felt like we've got way too much to do without trying to tinker with the UI and so on and so forth. Steve Jobs came back to Apple at the time and he pulled the team working on the operating system into the room and he basically said, you guys are a bunch of idiots, right? What you're doing with this operating system sucks and you have no clue what you're doing. They pulled out these concepts and uh, he said, oh, okay, well, maybe you might have a clue what you're doing. You know, show me what you're really trying to do. So they worked their asses off. Um, and for the next year and a half, you know, Steve Jobs, who is obviously a busy man, weekly met with the operating system team for hours working through what the operating system would be, which turned into OS X. So he made that this is the meta point. If you're going to commit to greatness, you've got to make the time. You can't not, you know, not put in the hours. And literally, this is a CEO putting in you know, a year and a half of hourly, weekly meetings looking at the details of the operating system. The end result of that, this is... A this is 200 people in line in St. Louis in a mall to buy an operating system, <laughs> right? I mean, think about that for a second. This is middle America, 200 people in a line in a mall to buy an operating system, which was Leopard. Um, that sold 2 million copies in its first weekend. So making the time had an impact, right? Um, the last point about kind of committing to greatness is there's two aspects to making this sort of commitment. You don't just make it at the high level and you don't just make it at the low level. So it, you have to have the ability to drive and putt. Driving is putting together a vision, so to carry through the Apple example, right? They have this vision of this digital uh, music ecosystem. This is an example that uh, Peter Meerholtz used a while back, where he said, hey, you know, the iPod is this beautiful, simple experience for playing video, the iTunes jukebox is the thing that takes all the complexity off that simple player. That's where you do all your playlisting, your rating, your altering, so on and so forth. And then the music store is the way you fill it with music, media, and games. So it's this high-level vision of how all these things fit together, and that's kind of the, the drive. But then to make it happen, you got to actually execute. So iTunes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and now they're on 9, I believe. Right, so success. This isn't a big picture vision kind of thing. This is putting in the time and the mileage and the details to make all this stuff happen. Similar story with the Wii. You know, the the high level vision is exactly what you're <laughs> seeing here. Right, it's actually surprising how many uh, nursing homes or nursery homes. What do I call them? Nursing, nursing homes. homes. Nursery homes. Sorry, nursing homes have uh, Wii competitions now, and they kind of compete with each other and so on and so forth. So this is kind of that high-level vision, but in order to get there, the Nintendo Wii had a number of kind of core decisions. So one of the things they did was they really tried to lower the, the development costs for game developers, right? Super simple graphics, really robust toolkits to create a Wii game, 
And as a result, when they came out, they had lots of great games. It's only now that Xbox and PlayStation 3 developers are catching up with the capabilities of that system actually creating good games. And those systems are now actually selling on the virtue of their games. Um, low price point, that was another thing that they committed to. And they also really tried to lower the gameplay bar to make sure that's more accessible and fun. Those kind of three really, how shall I say, tactical aspects of that high-level strategy I showed you before amounted to Wii selling 9 million under nine months, fastest selling console of all time. Uh, you know, it, it literally outsells the PlayStation 3, six to one. So in terms of committing to greatness, partial commitments, partial greatness, and this is, you know, my Samsung Fire example, right? Be bold in how you do that. Just a, a partial uh, investment isn't really going to give you that kind of return. Making the time, and then, like I said, driving and putting. A lot of companies and organizations focus on that big drive, but the odds of you actually putting it in are very, very um, rare. So in summary, what makes a product excellence differs where it is kind of in the product life cycle. We're increasingly facing things that are experience war driven, if you will. Um, so we need to distinguish things beyond just how, whether it works or not. We also have the capacity to manage a lot of complexity through the actual product design, product experience. And these are some kind of high level principles that I think emerge from a lot of these stories. And you know, again, I don't want to say that there's a set formula for anything like this, but if you have a perspective of kind of taking this outside in, angle on what you're doing. If you know what you're about and you build on top of it and um, define it well, and then if you commit to making great things by being bold, making the time and doing both driving and putting, I think that there's at least some traction you can get in this regard. So that's it. Thank you.